March 8, 2014, 12.42 a.m., Malaysia time. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, a 12-year-old Boeing 777, took off from Kuala Lumpur International Airport. The flight was scheduled to arrive at Beijing International Airport in China at 6 that morning. Just an hour into the flight, MH370 lost contact with air traffic control. Then, it disappeared off radar screens. Less than a day later, the most expensive search in aviation history had begun. But MH370 was never seen again. Hey everyone. Hey guys. I'm Jade. Welcome back. That's Nico. Also, real we're quick. At, we're, we're finally recording this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like been two a little weeks bit. late. Sorry guys. Nico's That's fault. mostly my fault. Because yeah. he, it actually kind of is. It was your Wi-Fi's fault. We had a time set and well, then his Wi-Fi committed. But then I found out it wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't like our provider of wi-fi it's just our modem for some reason wasn't working so i don't even or like our router or something i don't know so it's even stupider man that was weird yeah anyways but anyways two guys true crime um we're doing yeah. this and just so everyone knows i almost yelled at the start while he was reading i'm like hey what's up because i didn't know you were just gonna like start talking or reading about it i knew you're doing a cold start but so that would have been funny that would've, we would have just had to I'd have, i would have had to fire you man Oh, well, good thing I didn't do that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Do we have or, like, why don't you to... give everyone just a quick yeah. rundown on what the Two Guys True Crime is again, if they missed it. All right. So Two Guys, True Guys, True Crime. Two oh. Guys, True Crime <laughs> um, is a new type of podcast we're doing. We are going to every every month, hopefully, we're going to do it once a month. Uh, and we're just going to go through a unsolved mystery, a true crime story conspiracy theory something like that we're gonna we're gonna spend some time researching it we're going to get some actual facts into the two guys podcast wow we're what? actually gonna do work for the podcast work for the listeners guys you gotta pay us for this man this, yeah. this stuff is hard no we're doing this because it's fun um yep. and, so yeah. and, and interesting and interesting i'm very this is the one we're doing today mh370 is like my personal favorite all-time mystery thing so it's right. it's awesome so i'm gonna i'm gonna take the lead on this one nico will take the lead next month um mm-hmm. so for this week uh, yep. for this month nico is just gonna kind of kind of be there to ask questions to add comments he's gonna he's gonna rep- represent you guys a little bit because mm-hmm. he knows as much as you do yeah right now i'm assuming so anyway maybe maybe they know a lot about it what if they do Anyways. and that <laughs> Bro, launches me right into my you. disclaimer <laughs> Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. We aren't journalists, and we've never claimed to be. We're just two guys. While we can guarantee that we will do our very best to provide you with accurate and factual information, only for two guys, true crime, we can't guarantee that we'll get it right every time. If you do ever notice something wrong in one of our two guys, true crime podcasts, feel free to send us an email about it at the two guys podcast at gmail.com, or you can send us a message in our Discord. So that's what you can do if you find out that we're lying to you. All or right? you can do either of those things. Even if we're not lying, you can just uh, say, hey. <laughs> hey, you can just say hi. You can tell us yeah. all the things that we were right about. Yeah. And um, not 
at all involved or resolved no in relation to um the disclaimer just make sure you're listening to the end because then you'll find out what the next month's um topic will be that's right all right and um go ahead um yeah no i think i'm like Jaden was saying i'm super excited about this and i think it's gonna be super great and yeah yeah man this has been this has been about about i definitely didn't start working on this like a month ago when i should have but it's it's Mm. like a nice little two weeks of work for me that i'm going i mean that's that's pretty good hand out to you guys i've got i've got 11 pages of notes here wow we're gonna be here all freaking night all right oh and after you're saying 11 pages we may or may not split this up into podcasts, even if we record it in one sitting, um, just depending on how, how long, long we get. It ends up. Yeah. So they might be, they might not be. Also, you might have noticed we're not starting off with flipping you guys off. We're not going to do that for these episodes. That's right. All right. Are we ready to get this? I think we're ready. Show on the road. Okay. So we're going to go through this incident. Uh, we're first going to talk about the details of the disappearance. Then we're going to talk about the massive search that took place in the days, weeks, months, and years following the incident. And finally, we'll take a look at a couple of theories about MH370, and we're going to try and solve the greatest mystery in aviation history. Wow. That was kind of bars. Thank you. I like I do like (laughs) saying that. Mystery in aviation history. It's nice. nice. Um as mentioned before, in the cold open, Flight 370 took off from Kuala Lumpur International Airport just after midnight on March 8th, 2014. Just a heads up, I'm going to be using Malaysia time for all of these because okay. there's there's some time zone fluctuation. I could have used international time, but then you don't get a sense for like what time it is where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. The plane was a 12-year-old Boeing 777-2H6ER which had made its first flight in May of 2002. The plane had a total of 53,471.6 hours and 7,526 cycles of service. So a cycle is basically just a flight. So it's when a plane takes off, pressurizes, depressurizes, and lands. So um, for context, this this is a pretty average aged plane. It's not super new, but it's not like it's really old and junky it's i think that this could be completely off base the average lifespan for like a commercial plane is something like 25 to 35 years so this is only 12 years old so it's it's like a middle-aged plane nice and again i could be wrong about that that was just checking right now all right go ahead um average commercial plane lifespan okay keep going the plane had never been involved in a major incident leading up to this one, but it had been involved in a minor incident two years prior to the disappearance. In August 2012, the plane had clipped another aircraft while taxiing at Shanghai Pudong International Airport, suffering a broken right wing tip. This tip was replaced and the plane was put back into service. That's pretty basic. It's not a big deal, mm-hmm. but I want you to keep that in mind. Everybody okay. keep that in mind. We're going to circle back. Also, just quickly, um, average commercial plane lifespan is around 20 years, 51,000 flight hours, 75,000 pressurization cycles. All right. So this is a pretty, this is a pretty average, average kind of plane. Mm-hmm. Now, the lead pilot of this flight 
was Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah. He's a 53-year-old man from Penang, Malaysia. He had been with Malaysia Airlines since 1981 and had since accumulated 18,365 hours of flying experience. Shah was joined in the cockpit by Farik Abdul Hamid, who is 27. Hamid joined Malaysia Airlines in 2007, and he had 2,763 hours of flying experience. Hamid was on his very last training flight before he would be examined to become a bull pilot. So right now he's the first officer, which is, you know, one, one step below. So this is a very experienced pair of pilots, and they both have... Uh, a lot of experience with a Boeing 777. Including the crew, there were a total of 239 people aboard Flight 370. Uh, and 12 of them were crew members, 227 were passengers. There were 150 Chinese and 50 Malaysians, and the rest were from a broad array of countries from around the world. Fun, fun little tidbit here. On the plane, there was a group of 19 uh, Chinese artists who had just uh, just attended a calligraphy exhibition, mm-hmm. showing off their work. Very so cool. they were Chinese calligraphers uh, on their way back from an exhibition in Malaysia. That doesn't really have any effect on the rest of the story. It's just interesting fact. Very cool. Okay, so after taking off from Kuala Lumpur, uh, the plane headed northeast. It went into the Gulf of Thailand on the South China Sea. Now, for everybody who's listening and for Nico too, it's probably a good idea to try and look up a flight path, like a map of it, because explaining it verbally kind of makes sense. But once you see what actually what it actually looks like on a map, I think that will help a lot. So okay. again, so flight path for the flight, what's it called? MH370. Thank you. So after taking off from Kuala Lumpur, MH370 headed northeast into the Gulf of Thailand on the South China Sea. They were cleared to climb to flight level 180, which is about 18,000 feet, and were told to fly directly to waypoint Igari. A waypoint is just self-explanatory. It's just a spot on the map that, that pilots use to navigate. So Igari was just a point in the South China Sea that they were told to navigate to. Soon after departing, MH370 was told to switch from the airport's air traffic control to Lumpar Raider air traffic control. So what this means is that MH370 would stop communicating with the uh, control tower of the airport, and they would instead communicate with Malaysian National Air Traffic Control. This, this just meant that the pilot would switch the frequency on his radio, and he switched it, in this case, to 132.6 megahertz. And that's a completely normal procedure that happens on every flight. Uh, so just after switching to Lumpar Radar, which is uh, Malaysian National Air Traffic Control, MH370 was cleared to climb to flight level 370, which is 35,000 feet. Now, here's where things start to get a little weird. At 1.19 a.m. Malaysia time, MH370 is instructed to switch from Lumpar Radar to Ho Chi Minh Air Traffic Control as the plane was heading into Vietnamese airspace. Once again, this is a completely normal procedure. I have exact quotes from, from this interaction. Lumpur Radar says, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120.9. Good night. So there's Lumpur Radar basically just contacting the plane, 
telling them what frequency they're going on to and saying good night. Light 370 responds with good night, Malaysian 370. Now, this happens on every single international flight, typically with the first air traffic control officer instructing the flight on what frequency to contact and then wishing them a good night. The flight is then greeted with a good morning by the new air traffic control. Now, occasionally during this procedure, a plane will go through a black zone where they lose contact with air traffic control for a minute or two, which essentially leaves the pilots flying blind. While this seems like a pretty scary experience, it's not something that the two pilots of MH370 would would be uh, shaken by. It is, it's something they would have had plenty of experience with. And now things get even stranger. After acknowledging Lumpur Radar's instructions to switch to Ho Chi Minh air traffic control, MH370 signs off of Lumpur Radar. But they never log on to Ho Chi Minh air traffic control. They never even appear on Vietnamese radar. Then just one minute after logging off of Lumpur air traffic control, the plane disappears from radar zones. This tells us one thing about what's happening in the plane. Air traffic control radar is, is secondary radar, which means that the plane's location is determined by signals from two transponders within the aircraft. This means that exactly 1.21 and 13 seconds AM Malaysia time, both these transponders stopped working. There are only two ways that this could have happened. Either a catastrophic electrical failure or an intentional shutoff. Pilots are taught to never shut off the transponders unless it's necessitated by a major emergency and even then they're taught that they must have permission from air traffic control. Now you might think that since the plane disappeared from radar and lost communication with air traffic control that this is all that we know about the flight path. But it's not. Days after the disappearance, the Malaysian government revealed that they had also been tracking the plane using primary radar which is what is used by most militaries, and it does not require a transponder. Data from the primary radar showed that just after the plane vanished from secondary radar, it made a slight right turn, then turned almost completely around to the left. This had the plane traveling southwest, back over Malaysia, completely opposite of the direction that it was supposed to be going. The plane then went all the way across Malaysia before making a turn to the northwest as it passed the island of Penang. After this turn, the plane traveled for another 230 miles before it lost contact with primary radar. Once again, I highly recommend that you look up a map uh, of the flight path in order to get a better understanding of where the plane went. Super helpful. Very helpful. Do you have it up, Nico? I do, yeah. All right. So, what are you what are you thinking so far? Um, do you, you got any theories festering in your brain? I mean, it seems like. So you had you had mentioned that like um, either it was like a catastrophic electrical failure, um, or like they just turned them off, and like for them to fly that far without, it seems like any um problems it seems like it almost be like a, a like a like they turned it off on their own you know right yeah um but yeah that's all i got for now all right so despite losing contact with primary radar there's actually another way that the plane was tracked which continued for another hour after the plane disappeared from primary radar at 2:25 a.m 
which is three minutes after the plane lost contact with primary radar. The satellite communication system sent a logon request. So this satellite uh, communication system is something that is uh, owned by the manufacturer of the plane. So this would be Boeing in this case. And it's basically just a, it's a satellite that goes up to, or a satellite signal that goes up to a satellite, heads down to a, a ground station. And it, all it really does is let the ground station know that the plane is there. It doesn't provide any information about the plane's location, about the plane's condition. It just lets them know that it's the plane is on and it's working. Uh, this is referred to in the airline industry as a handshake because it's these two these two stations are just acknowledging each other's existence. The plane continued to respond to hourly transmissions sent from the ground station after almost two hours after its scheduled arrival time in Beijing. The final transmission was another handshake received at 8.19 and 29 seconds in the morning Malaysia time. This was the last communication from MH370. Search and rescue efforts had begun at 5.30 a.m. Malaysia time, after four hours without any communication from the pilots. Initially, the search was focused on the place where the plane had last appeared on secondary radar, the South China Sea and the Gulf of Thailand. The surface of the ocean was scoured in this area until March 12th, four days after the disappearance. And that's when the Malaysian government finally revealed that their primary military radar had tracked the plane after its final disappearance. So the Malaysian government, essentially, they, they didn't want to reveal the strength of their military radar because it's, it's like a military secret. They didn't want to give that up. And so they didn't want to reveal that they knew how where the plane had gone afterward which okay. is really sad honestly i think mm -hmm. like it's like four days that could have been spent searching in the right the right spot yeah just weren't because of military secrecy yeah hmm. that's interesting so with that new information from the military radar in hand the search area moved hundreds of kilometers to the west, focusing on the location of the final sighting of the plane on military radar. However, even after the plane disappeared from primary radar, satellite communications, which are the handshakes, indicated that the plane remained online for seven more hours. This meant that the plane could have traveled over 6,000 kilometers after it disappeared. This left a 113 million square kilometer area where the plane had gone down. The Malaysian government knew that it would not be able to complete this kind of search alone and called for the aid of the rest of the world. And many countries did lend their aid. Australia, China, India, Japan, New Zealand, South Korea, the UK, and the United States all lent ships and planes to the search. Because the plane had not reappeared on primary radar in any country, as, as far as we know at least, it was determined that the plane had most likely turned around again after leaving Malaysian military radar, putting on a southwestern heading into the Indian Ocean. By March 18th, search efforts had focused on a 305,000 square kilometer area southwest of Perth, Australia. Seeing as this new location was nearest to Australia, the Australian government took the lead. This part of the ocean was over 2,500 kilometers away from the nearest port, meaning it took six days just to get a boat out to the search area. 
Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott was quoted saying that the search location was as close to nowhere as you can get. Rescuers were forced to battle strong winds, rough seas, and a deep ocean floor to attempt to find the plane or any survivors. The search efforts increased after pieces of debris were photographed by a satellite on the ocean surface on March 16th. Seven different countries sent ships to this area, but they were unable to find any of the reported debris. In the coming days, hundreds of pieces of debris were spotted using satellite imagery, but none could be demonstrated to come from MH370. On March 28th, 10 days after the initial move of the search area, new estimates about the fuel remaining led the Australian government to search the search area to move the search area again, this time bringing it about 1,000 kilometers closer to Australia. On March 30th, Four large orange objects were found, which brought a brief glimmer of hope to the case, but they were quickly found to be fishing equipment. Two days later, the British Royal Navy sent a survey vessel, HMS Echo, and a submarine, HMS Tireless, to try a search for the plane's underwater locator beacons, which were attached to the plane's flight data recorders. These were critical to the investigation. As Is that like they the would... black box thing? Yeah, that's the black box. So that's what that records everything that's going on at the cockpit that records like engine stuff. Yeah. Okay, cool. But uh, so the underwater locator beacons are attached to the flight data recorders uh, and these send out a signal that, you know, allows them to be found if, if the plane does crash underwater. Uh, the problem was that the battery on the underwater locator beacons was expected to run out around the 7th of April. Meaning, if they're not found before then, you have you have basically no shot, right? Like, it's yeah. it's like a little a little black box in the entire ocean with nothing mm-hmm. leading you to it. You so two Chinese vessels recorded possible detections of the underwater locator beacon on April fifth, and HMS Echo and Tireless quickly investigated, but they were unable to detect any other signals. On April 6th, a Japanese vessel called Ocean Shield detected two signals at the northern end of the search area, but once again nothing came of it as the frequency of these signals was not within the range possible for an underwater locator beacon. The search for the underwater locator beacon finally came to a close on April 14th, as the batteries in the beacon would almost certainly have run out. The surface search ended on April 28th as the consensus was that any wreckage that had been floating had likely become waterlogged and sank, as it had been nearly two months since the crash. The focus then shifted to a search of the ocean floor, which made the use of side-scan sonar to parse the seabed. This search lasted over a month, ending on May 28th, and found no debris that could be linked to MH370. On June 26th, the next phase of the search was announced as the government of Malaysia contracted with an oil company called Petronas to participate in the search. They began the underwater search for MH370 on October 6th. This underwater search scoured 120,000 kilometers of ocean, sorry, square kilometers of ocean, but again came up empty. This underwater portion of the search was finally called off almost three years after the crash in 2017. Dang. Now, the main crash site and remains of MH370 have never been found, 
But in July of 2015, a small group of people were cleaning up a, a beach on the coast of Reunion Island, a small French territory in the Indian Ocean, 56,000 kilometers southwest, sorry, 5,600 kilometers southwest of where the plane lost contact with primary radar. The beach cleaners found a large piece of metal debris that had a stenciled marking of a serial number. This serial number matched that of the plane that was used for Flight 370. The debris was identified as the right flapperon of the plane and sparked searches of the ocean around the island of Reunion for more debris. To date, three more pieces of debris have been found that are, quote, definitely from MH370, joined by five more which are, quote, almost certainly from MH370. None of these pieces showed any signs of an explosion or fire. In 2018, a private company called Ocean Infinity resumed the search for the crash site and remains of MH370, with a contract in place with the Malaysian government. The search went on for six months using ocean floor mapping, environmental sensors, and high-definition cameras. The search spanned 120,000 square kilometers, but it was called off in June of 2018, having not found anything. Since then, there have been talks about resuming the search for MH370, but as of this recording, there has been no action taken to resume the search. In the end, search for MH370 cost the Malaysian government 112 million US dollars, making it the most expensive search operation in aviation history. All right, so wait, wait, just a quick question. So that's how much it cost Malaysia, but would that been like covering the cost of like all the other countries as well? That's, like, did they I, have I to pay for find them any, to do that? I couldn't find anything on the other countries. Okay. So I, I think that's those would be on top of what Malaysia had to pay, as far as I know. Yeah. Okay. So it's so yeah. that's just that's just a fraction. I think Malaysia probably spent the most on it since it was yeah it was their plane, but yeah the other countries had to put a ton of money into this too mm-hmm. yeah so far and away the most expensive search operation in yeah. aviation history yeah. yeah those are the details of we've, we've gone through the disappearance we've gone through the search what's what are you mm-hmm. thinking right now nico i don't know it's um it's a lot of information and like it definitely it, it just seems like you know like fishy like just like they couldn't find anything and he, well, I mean, and the pieces that they did find, like it wasn't anything, um, like it, it, like it just was a piece. It wasn't like a, like you said, an explosion or like a fire or anything like that. Right. Um, I mean, yeah. The ocean is huge, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's hard to find anything in there. If I remember correctly, it took until like nineteen the nineteen eighties to find the Titanic, mm-hmm. which went down in nineteen twelve. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna look that up quickly. When was the Titanic discovered? And they had survivors too. 1985. So that'd be 73 years to find the, the Titanic. So I don't think it's mm-hmm. that surprising to not find anything. But then again, you also like, think about all the technology that w- that was used. Yeah. Right. Like, like versus the tech they had in 1985, right? Exactly, yeah. And, like, there were also survivors from the Titanic ship. Right, yeah. So, like... So, they, they could and, kind of tell yeah. what happened, right? And, like, another thing, like, 
so when you're like there was like so um i guess it might be a bit different for this but like in during 911 um like the there was like a phone on the plane that some people were able to get there there's this book it's called like let's roll or something i don't know if you've ever yeah. heard of it um but um so basically they were able to get a hold of like a phone on the plane call like land somewhere but i don't know if that'd be different since they were like over the states when that happened versus like this they were probably this over the ocean over, so i don't know over open ocean actually mm -hmm. as so i don't know if they would have had like any service of any sort as the plane turned i believe in its its second turn where it where it made a slight turn around the island of penang okay if i remember correctly there was a a connection for a second between a cell phone tower and the cell phone of the co-pilot the first officer mm. um so just like it, a ping basically just a ping it wasn't a call it wasn't a text just, just yeah a ping. yeah um yeah but that was mm. that was like the only cell phone communication that there was do you know what that means what does that mean his cell phone wasn't in airplane mode his cell phone wasn't in airplane mode which could actually mean something but uh, yeah what could it mean if he wasn't making a call or a text he's playing phone games he's playing angry birds <laughs> um okay so with with the information that we have available with everything that we've we've already talked about let's try and figure out what happened right so in the first days after the plane disappeared the main mm -hmm. idea was that the plane had been hijacked which which makes sense uh, yeah with yeah. with any like plane disappearance since 9-11 the first thought is hijacked um this would mm -hmm. explain why the plane's transponders were turned off it would explain why the pilot and first officer were unresponsive and a number of suspects immediately began to stand out first there were two men who boarded Flight 370 using stolen passports. These men used the passports to pass as Austrian and Italian, when in fact they were both Iranian, one 19, the other 29. However, there was a deep investigation into these men, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and they found there was no link to any terrorist group, um, and a ter no terrorist group ever attempted to claim responsibility for the crash. That's true. And the two men were determined to be asylum seekers. They were just looking to get out of Malaysia and try and make their way to Europe. Um, so, so then, so we can put those guys aside. Probably not. The reason behind this. The next prime suspect was the pilot himself, Zahari Ahmad Shah. As I mentioned earlier, he's an experienced pilot. He's been with wait, sorry, Malaysia wait, Airlines. Can you? Can you? Um... Wait, so the co-pilot you said, or the, the main pilot? The pilot. The head, the lead pilot. Zahari Ahmad Shah. So mentioned earlier, he's an experienced pilot. He'd been with Malaysia Airlines since 1981. He had lots of experience with a Boeing 777. And in fact, he had a flight simulator at home that he had designed to function exactly like the cockpit of a Boeing 777. Nice. Now, based on all reports from his friends and family, Shaw was a kind-hearted man who was dedicated to his community. An online tribute from a college roommate describes him as friendly, good-hearted, and sociable. He was known to cook food for neighbors and community events. By all accounts, Shaw was not the type of person who would commit a mass murder suicide. Mm -hmm. There were some reports 
that Shaw had been going through marital issues, but those were immediately shot down by the family. Now, in 2016, the first real evidence against Shaw was revealed, when a leaked U.S. document revealed that in the days leading up to the crash, someone appeared to have flown a path similar to the known flight path of MH370 using Shaw's homemade flight simulator. This cast even more suspicion on the captain, obviously. Like, he had, it seemed, almost that same path. Wait, but, wait sorry, the same path that they were supposed to fly, or the, that he that, ended up flying? The, end, the flight ended up taking. Oh, okay. But in 2018, it was revealed that the supposed flight path on the simulator had just been a set of seven coordinates. These coordinates had been, if they had been connected, they would have formed a flight path that went from Kuala Lumpur International Airport and ended in the Indian Ocean. But there was no evidence that they were connected at all. So they could have just been from completely different sessions on the flight simulator. They were just sets of coordinates that had been put in at random times. The the interesting thing is that these were all that uh, government agents were able to get from the flight simulator because it had been wiped of all data before the pilot left. So I don't let's 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 go through let's go over these again. So we have yeah. the two Iranians who are trying not to be Iranian. Yep. What do what do you rank that? Like one out of or what out of ten in likely ability? Well, I mean by themselves like a one. Yeah. But Let's say they were paired up like with the pilot or something, and they mm. like he hired them or he like had them as helping him out, you know, like that could be a little more believable since, like, I don't know. Right. Um, the pilot definitely seems like something seems suspicious, like with like the wiping it down of like the right, like all the yeah. data on the simulator. I don't know if that's something then, he regularly but did. I think but... the issue is that his motive, right? Like, there, there was no, like, as far as anybody knows, at least, there's no, there was no reason for this guy to do, to do anything that extreme. Yeah, but that doesn't mean like that there isn't like at all any chance of it. That's true. That's true. So, what do you rate like, that you one? Can't out just rule it out. Um, for the pilot. I'd say like a six or a seven, maybe. It just seems a little bit suspicious. Interesting. Another theory about the vanishing of Flight 370 was centered around cargo. MH370 was carrying 10,806 kilograms of cargo. 221 of these were lithium ion batteries. These batteries are known to cause major fires if they overheat and catch fire, and they're strictly regulated in terms of airport aircraft transport. In September of 2010, a fire caused by a shipment of lithium-ion batteries caused the crash of UPS Airlines Flight 6, and in July 2011, a lithium-ion battery fire caused the crash of Asiana Airlines Flight 991. So, again, this this, is, mm-hmm. there, this has been shown to caused plane crashes before and they had it on flight 370 mm-hmm. but the thing is if there is a major blaze on flight MH370 it completely fails to explain yeah. the erratic flight path 
In order for the plane to follow the, the known flight path after its disappearance, it would have needed to either be navigated and steered by somebody in the cockpit, or it would have had to have the data of that flight path put into the autopilot. Um, and also the the first flight, or sorry, the second the second turn, where they went almost completely around, mm -hmm. that was too sharp to have been done by the autopilot. Mm -hmm. So that one had to have been done by somebody in the cockpit controlling the plane. Especially this, like since like um like they turned so sharp and they didn't like try to correct anything. Like they turned quickly and right. they just stayed like that. You know, it just it okay. seems like it was on purpose. The the idea of a fire also doesn't explain why the plane's two secondary radar transponders went out. Um, if the fire had caused an electrical failure so severe that both of these crucial systems went out simultaneously, there's no way the plane could have remained online for another eight hours, which it yep. did. Yep. And finally, none of the recovered debris from MH370 had any evidence of fire or explosion. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, puts this to like a one out of ten. Yeah, I don't think if, if anything, like... like if they crashed because of a fire, it wasn't the reason they went off course. Like right. maybe they got fire after flying for like eight hours or whatever, like later, but like it wouldn't, like you were saying, it wouldn't have shut off like the transponder things and it wouldn't have led them to fly randomly or, exactly. or like try not to, they, is it like if it was a fire, they would have tried to reconnect like with radios and stuff, you know? Exactly. And I mean, you, you can almost say like that first turnaround after, after the disappearance that could be them trying to get back to malaysia right and and try and land mm -hmm. but there's there's no evidence that they looked for an airport at all yeah well and like even if like 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 you're saying like if there was a fire or like just like yeah if, just if there's because, a fire like, then it makes it. sense to just turn around and yeah. try and try and get back to malaysia but but they didn't land in malaysia they kept going well and it couldn't have been a fire right then because they flew for so much longer, right? You know? Exactly, yeah. All right, so we have two more theories to get through, and these ones are a little bit more conspiratorial. Okay. So this first theory is one that surrounds that initial piece of debris that was found on the coast of Reunion. This theory has been mostly posited by, you know, internet sleuths on online mm -hmm. forums or or true crime podcasts. And, and it states that in order to make the investigation look better, the Malaysian government planted that debris on the island of Reunion. Now, take a, take a little walk back with me to the very beginning of this episode. I told you about that minor crash that the plane had. You remember that the plane mm -hmm. had its right wing tip replaced. This included mm -hmm. the right flapperon, which is the piece that was discovered on the beach of Reunion. Ooh. Ooh. Now, supporters of this theory point to barnacles. They point to the barnacles that coated the flapperon that was found on the beach. Some claim that if the debris had floated on the current all the way, all the way to Reunion, the barnacles would have only covered one side of the debris because of some... I don't know barnacle thing. I didn't. I couldn't find any reason yeah. for that. Um, like, well, maybe if it like just the way that they um, they're like a water thing, right? So like yeah. they would probably be on the side underwater. But I don't see why it could flip. But anyway, sorry. 
but there were barnacles all over the recovered flaperon. Theorists claimed that this would be consistent with the flaperon being submerged in a tank of water for a long period of time. What do you think of that theory? Um, I think like that theory in a whole is pretty good, except for like the last little bit. Like I again, I don't understand like why the barnacles can only be on one side, right. and if it's like because only one side is submerged, it seems like if it's floating for the, as long as it did, it seems like it could flip over or be underwater completely for a little bit. Like you know, right? Yeah. Um, but like that theory in in, in a, as a whole, I think is pretty is pretty um, spicy. It's a spicy one. Now, on the other hand, this would be a extraordinarily difficult task for the Malaysian government. The wingtip that had been replaced would have been stored in an aircraft graveyard, which is likely somewhere in Europe. It's just, you know, where they put all the pieces of an aircraft. Somebody would have had to break into this facility, locate the correct part, which had been in there for uh, about a year, I think. I don't remember how long it was anymore. Over a year, I'm pretty sure at that point. And remove this massive piece mm-hmm. of metal without being noticed by anything. And what would they have gained from it, right? Mm-hmm. The The discovery mm-hmm. of the flaperon didn't help to ease any of the pressure on the Malaysian government. And it didn't help anyone figure out what happened to MH370. Mm-hmm. My question is, though, like, was it ever confirmed that it was put in that graveyard? I'm, I didn't. I didn't research anything on that, but I, okay. as as I remember, I think there should there should be some sort of documentation as to where it where mm-hmm. it was put. Yeah, and like an an idea that I have is like, so it didn't take any pressure off the Malaysian government or or anything for finding something, you know, mm-hmm. but it makes it leads people to believe that there was a crash. Ooh. Whereas, like, maybe it landed somewhere, That's right? There there were some other theories that I okay. looked at that involved the idea that the plane did not crash. Okay. Some say that they're, the passengers are still being held hostage by the American government. Oh, wow. Joe Biden. Joe, they're so they're all in Joe the White Biden's House. America. This is Joe Biden's America. What if it is Joe Biden? Pretty sure it's not captain. Joe Biden. He was a captain. The pilot. The captain was Zahari Ahmad Shah, which conveniently is Malaysian for Joe Biden. I'm sorry, guys. Um, we're supposed to be we're supposed to be trying to tell you guys the truth in this episode, and that was not the truth. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can't expect this to be not at all um comedical. This is is still the two guys podcast. Remember, after all. (laughs) Okay. Anyways. Our final theory is, in my opinion, even more outlandish than the last. And this one is almost pure speculation. Mm -hmm. To explain this theory, we need to go back to 2001. After the the devastating attacks on on World Trade Center on 9-11, the United States government is said to have looked at the possibility of seizing control of an aircraft from the ground. Now, there's no evidence at all that this technology was ever put into use on any plane, let alone a Malaysian passenger plane. But that hasn't stopped some from wondering whether Flight 370 was the victim of a cyber hijacking. Hmm. What do you think? That definitely, I mean, 
it would explain like a few things like like the um, lack of connect like communication I mean, while it, like the rest of the plane was still functional you know if if it's true i think it can explain just about everything right yeah. like you could say that they took control of the plane they made it turn all crazy and then they crashed it but there's just it's again it's completely speculation there's no evidence at all it mm-hmm. there's no evidence that this technology even exists right obviously yep. that it could be it could exist mm-hmm. but why yeah. why use it on some random malaysian passenger flight mm-hmm. right so yes there have been it's been seven years following the incident and people have been positing this theory for a good chunk of that time and still no evidence has been found mm-hmm. at all to prove that that technology exists so to me that's just mm-hmm. conspiracy theory yeah okay okay what about this theory though right oh, you ready we got, a, we got a new one is this just coming from your brain yeah yeah, yeah. it's just okay, something i okay. thought up so the pilot all right he's he's he he's very good at like you know he he's he, everyone thinks he's a happy guy you know a good guy but deep down inside he's actually just he's so sick of his job but um he doesn't want to disappoint the people around him in his life that he just quits you know retires so he's planning this getaway and he decides, you know, because now listen here. Let's say it's a hijack by a human. Mm-hmm. There were 200 passengers, 200 plus passengers on that plane. Right. That, like, they weren't able to stop it for how many hours? Like, they couldn't do anything? Like, you know? like Maybe they did try to stop it. Maybe they took control of the plane. Maybe that's why it went all crazy. Maybe none of them mm-hmm. know how to fly a plane. I mean, yeah, 19 well, like, of them are the just thing, calligraphers. Right? That's true. No, but like, like let's like, and I think that this like um, security of the cockpit and stuff has been like was like updated a lot since like nine eleven. So yeah. I don't know if it was just easier to lock it down and nobody get in, or like because like there was there actually was, like, sorry, I'm just gonna yeah go ahead hop right in here. There was a cat. There was a, a hijacking where the co-pilot hijacked the plane, and all he did was wait for the pilot to go to take a bathroom break and then lock the cockpit door pranked pranked uh, so yeah. like so basically saying that once it's locked like you couldn't do anything i mean you probably could but i don't know if they would or would have, or would have, if they though that specific group would have been able to i'm not really sure i don't mm-hmm. know very okay. much about the the anatomy of aircraft doors unfortunately okay okay well so so my my questioning is like i i don't know the total amount of hours that they were flying around but um in those total amount of hours it seems like the 200 people weren't able to like i don't know gain control of it somehow like it it just felt like yeah um so my theory is the pilot who was trying to get away decided to advertise this as well as a getaway for everyone else, right? So if you're trying to get away from your life that you live, then um, you know, join me on this on this flight. Um, where where would he advertise that? Well, and how is there, how has that never been found? Yeah, well, that's where the two guys with um, the fake passports come two in. Two guys? 
the two guys <laughs> um as they were it was like you know they were there's um severely like researched and stuff um to as like part of a terrorist group which they were not of course but um they were able to uh, get the advertisement out there get all these people on board that were that were not only on board the plane but on board of this idea resulting in them not um, trying to gain access of the plane after it went all um, kahoot. Oh, so then, um, so everyone on, on, on this plane is on board of this idea, including the co-pilot and all the like people on staff on the plane. So he's um, the pilot and co-pilot. They just got to shake the, they got to shake the people off that are following them. Right. So that's why they're going all over the place. Who's following um, them? What? Who followed? Bro, literally the entire, like, following, like, as in, like, figuring out where they're going. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, what? Not they're like wearing, watching like, them. Not like following. No, no. Yeah. Anyways. Um, so that's why they had to go out, which after that, while they were flying, they opened up the doors and they dropped out those pieces that they got um, of the old, like, the plane tip. Huh. Yeah, they dropped those out the door, and then they closed the door after that. And then they went to a resort that the pilot had been um, working on in Antarctica, where they are still they have been there. Able to make it to Antarctica. They didn't have enough fuel. No, but you don't understand because he has somebody on the outside part of this. All right, that came and refueled them while they were flying. You know those things. Anyways, so they got the refuel. And they got down to Antarctica, where they still are. They're still chilling. Really chilling. Still having a grand time. <laughs> I don't know about that one, buddy. Okay, um, so maybe not the entire thing is what I was thinking, but, like, parts of it, you know. How much of that did you just make up as you went along? <laughs> um, well, I had a good start in my head, and then I kind of ran out of it. But, ideas, like, so. I, so the idea that the passengers had to have at least tried to, like, Yeah, stop like, I was just curious, on. like, why, why wouldn't like what would now, stop 200 people this, from doing something this is an overnight flight a lot of them are probably asleep okay so there's that and they might not know exactly what the flight path is supposed to be yeah they might not have but like what about like a massive like turn like that like what would would you i don't know like i don't know like actually how sharp a like boeing 77 is capable of turning well, yeah, like, but like you can definitely see. So like, let's say they knew where they were. Like let's say a few of them knew which way their flight was headed. Yeah. Like if you're turning, you know you're turning. Like you can tell. Like yeah. I've been on a plane before when you're like you're circling the airport or whatever. Like yeah, and yeah. then you can but see the, they're turning, over right? the ocean at this point, right? So it's a little. I think I imagine it'd be a little bit harder to tell. I mean, I suppose, but like this this flight or this this turn was like too sharp for. Uh, automated flying system right. which means it was a sharp turn like it, it wasn't was, yes. something you wouldn't feel as my guess but maybe so maybe the pilot ex said something like hey we gotta make a sharp turn here because of electrons <laughs> or, or maybe or he's like sorry about that just experiencing some turbulence he could have even said something yeah, like that he could have said something like that and then they're, they're like oh okay it's, it's 1 a.m i'm gonna go back to sleep yeah yeah, yeah. go back to sleep next thing you know you're crashing into the indian ocean not and it, it doesn't even need to be the pilot who says that, right? Yeah, into the intercom it could have been Joe That's Biden. True. Joe Biden's America. All right. Um, no, so, but hang on, but hang on. Okay, okay. So, 
let's say those pieces were planted uh, yeah. by somebody. Um, it just seems a little bit suspicious, like that. Like still, even though there is is a massive ocean, just like that, no signals were found from like the black box, or like no pieces were found on the floor of it, or floating over the course of like how many months searching and like years searching actually. Um, I mean, the black box you only had a month to get to. Well, yeah, signal right. But they had not just like Malaysia searching, like they had governments and like and they had like um not just government they had like military people searching and like military right. equipment searching it just seems like a little bit suspicious of why they couldn't find anything hmm. and like sure. when they did nothing turned up um and then the pieces that they found were just so happening to be the pieces that were replaced um, right like a year before a year prior now there were um, other there were other pieces found that were not from okay from that that wing that was the first one that was found was okay and and the other pieces found were for sure 100 percent certainly from that flight or there were probably uh, let me try and find this again um okay three pieces have been found that are definitely from mh370 so those are ones that have like a serial number okay um so that would be the right the right wing Labron, and there were a couple mm-hmm. more that I don't believe were from the right wing, okay. or like at least the right wing tip. Um, yeah. And then there are five more, which are almost certainly from MH370. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. We're going to wrap it up here. So let's do that. After all this, seven years of searching, investigation, and inquiry, after countless investigative articles, documents, podcasts, what are we left with? What are we to make of the greatest mystery in aviation history? I have a couple of thoughts, and then I'm going to let you give a couple of thoughts as well, if you like. So first of all, what I I learned from this is the ocean is massive. Mm -hmm. Four years searching the ocean floor. Hundreds of thousands of square kilometers, and they all yielded nothing. The final resting place of MH370 is somewhere, but it's telling of how little we know about our own planet that we haven't found it yet. And second, and this one is a little bit more speculative, but we've kind of touched on it already. This this was intentional. This is an accident. Somebody had to have steered that plane off course. Somebody had to turn off those transponders. Nothing that I've learned about the disappearance of MH370 has led me to believe that it was just a tragic accident. We'll likely never know for sure, and we certainly won't learn much more unless the rest of the plane is found. But in my eyes, this incident was intentionally caused by someone. I don't know who, and I don't know why, but this clearly was an accident. What are, what are your thoughts? I think it has something to do with the Bermuda Triangle, because they definitely flew over that. Um, we can talk about the Bermuda Triangle in a future episode of Two Guys True. That's actually a good idea. They um, definitely anyways, didn't fly over it, though. No, they did not. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely... Um, it's like it puts into perspective like you're saying like the size of the ocean or and like the earth and like how little we know about it but also just like how like uncertain stuff is you know like like we don't actually know anything that's gonna happen like and we like and this happened like multiple years ago and we still don't know what happened so like it just like puts into perspective how little we know about anything which is yeah, a little sure. bit 
terrifying sometimes but um it's also i feel like like we 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 don't know what's gonna happen there's no point in trying to stop like or not that's that's bad wording there's no point in trying to um how predict. should i wish this well predict i was gonna say worry but that's not the right word because like you still should be like on guard for things but like i guess it's just like don't um don't live life like fearing the bad things that you don't know could happen i guess i don't know if that makes sense um that's deep, so man. there's that um but i think also just like on a more technical side of things it's just like um like you were talking about like it definitely seems intentional and definitely seems like like it, it couldn't just like have happened or it couldn't have just like um right. you know and it almost seems a little bit planned like just with like their flight locations like um not just being like over land or like something like that like it, it felt like it was like to avoid mm, um yeah like systems trying to find them like the like the um the secondary and the um yeah. primary like yeah. systems i don't know it's just kind of interesting kind of yeah very it's a very interesting case all right guys mm. thank you very much for turning in turn for tuning in to our first episode of True Guys True Crime. We will hopefully be back next week with a regular mm. episode of the podcast where we'll flip you off and everything. And mm. next month with Nico's first time at the helm of a Two Guys True Crime episode. Uh-huh. Nico, why don't you give the audience a little, a little sneak peek? Tell them what we're going to be talking about. All right. So I haven't actually commenced my research yet. Uh-oh. But um, that's for this coming month. Or the coming two weeks before the episode, if you're Jaden or me. Anyways, um, I will be talking a little bit about, it's not as much um, a case or scenario, um, like, so specific, but it's a bit more of, like, a story, and that is going to be the history, I guess, behind, like, Bonnie and Clyde, um, which I think is going to be pretty interesting um and if you do know a little bit about them that'll be cool if you don't that's also cool um don't don't you guys go researching at all just wait just hold off yeah if you guys start researching then we won't be telling you ahead of time (laughs) not that we we would really know but um (laughs) yeah all right thank you guys um Mm-hmm. Is that everything we gotta we gotta talk about before we? I believe that is everything. Thank you guys for All listening. Right, thanks guys for um, listening. And mm-hmm. remember, you never know what's going to happen. I think that sums In, up what you yeah. said. <laughs> um, Thank you, Dre. <laughs> remember to always stay curious and thinking about things that we tell you about. <laughs> that we don't tell you about um i i should have thought of something to say at the end of this yeah otherwise we end up with we're struggling with gamers and stuff yeah (laughs) i feel like we're struggling with something intelligent to say when we don't actually plan it yeah um Um, so remember guys remember just remember to (laughs) engage with us okay if you you said something that's wrong tell us about it if we said something that you really liked tell us about it if you if you know 
where MH370 is? Tell us and also Tell us. the government about it. Um, unless, like, um, unless it's, like, the government crucial is to... the one who's, like, done done the thing, then tell somebody. Yeah. Uh, unless it, well, that's, hey, that's just another conspiracy theory. Um, yeah. All right. See you next Bye, week. guys. <laughs> Thanks.